Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, sometimes maybe even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. In our previous episode, we talked about how the kings of the house of David took a spiritually disastrous fall into the pattern of the idolatrous kings of Israel. Today, we're going to look at the most remarkable revival in that nation's history as we consider Hezekiah, Reformation, and Crisis. In 2 Kings chapter 18, Hezekiah, in the third year of Hezekiah, son of, or of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that according to all his father David had done. Now before we get much further in this, of all of the complicated issues of chronology that there are in the books of Kings, all of those chronological issues become a train wreck when you start trying to figure out when Hezekiah was and what all of that. Because, and, and I believe that there is plan and purpose for the confusing and mixed chronologies that the writer of Kings is using and bringing in here. He's not doing this because he's incompetent. He's doing it for specific artistic and theological reasons. He is wanting us to understand. He is using this as a technique to help us understand the spiritual chaos that is going on in this era of history. So we're given Hezekiah's starting year, but apparently his starting year was not actually his starting year for reigning as king, but when he began as co-regent under his father Ahaz and working as the crown prince who is doing administrative work as the co-regent, basically he's starting to reign under his father Ahaz and having to carry out many of the policies In fact, all of the policies that his father instituted, whether he likes them or not. What we're going to find out is that he did not like the policies of his father. Ahaz was an outright idolater. Now, most of the kings of Judah had some problem with idolatry going all the way back to Solomon. But most of them kind of pussyfooted around the issue. Ahaz has been a full-fledged idolater. How deep into idolatry had he become? He had gotten so deep that he had installed and instituted and practiced child sacrifice as part of his idolatrous worship. And all of his idolatry seemed particularly be directed toward pleasing the king of Assyria to whom he had become a vassal. Now, who who is the Assyrian Empire right now? Basically, the Assyrian Empire... They are the Klingon empire of the ancient world. Now, historians don't like to use moral judgments. But normal people use moral judgments. And the Assyrian empire was evil. They were ruthless and merciless. Yes, but war is ruthless and merciless. No, no, no. They practiced war according to their ethic, which was 
we get to destroy you or do with you whatever we want to do. The Assyrians had no fear of any of They had developed not only a warlike culture, but a warlike culture that was intensely and deliberately cruel. And cruelty was their means of maintaining control over their empire. Ahaz had made a devil's bargain with Assyria in order to keep at bay his enemies who were the Syrians, that is the Arameans, whose capital city was Damascus, and the kingdom of Israel, whose capital city was Samaria. To keep them at bay, he made a treaty, a bargain, a He enslaved himself to the king of Assyria. And he went all the way. Including bringing in their gods, the other gods, the gods of all the nations. And worshipped them to the preference of Jehovah. Who still, he kept kept the altar of Jehovah around in a back room. Literally, in a back room. So that he can go use it and consult it from time to time whenever he really got into a bad emergency. But right, for the, I mean, we'll, we'll just basically serve everybody. We didn't, you know. Ahaz was an outright idolater. He is taking his country, his nation, on the same path of idolatry that destroys the kingdom of Israel. Hezekiah, somehow. The crown prince under that king disavows his father. Disavows all of his father's policies. How, why, we don't know. On most of these kings of Judah, we are told their mother's names as though that were significant. That's the only clue that we have. Otherwise, we do not know why was Hezekiah different. But oh, was he different. Did you notice the difference? What was different about what what he just said from what we've heard about all the other kings of Judah? Not only did he do right, all that his father David had done. He He did right according to all that his ancestor David. Now that's the gold standard. Right there. That's the gold standard. Why? Because Not because David was so great. But because this is the one with whom God made his covenant. His heart was given to the Lord. David did wrong. David was a great sinner. But he was a first class repenter. And with all that David did that was wrong. His heart still always came back to God. So he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. He was 25 years old when he began to reign actually as king, apparently, or maybe that was as his co-regent. It's, it's hard to tell. We're just, there are some things we're going to bring in as we go along here, but let's just get into it. He did right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars, cut down the Asher. He broke in peace the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. 
Nehushtan basically is kind of a proper name given to the, uh, putting together the words of bronze serpent. They gave it a name. See, they'd had this as a souvenir from the days of the wilderness. You remember that? Jesus even referred to it when he spoke to Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Use that as a parable, as an analogy. That bronze serpent, that was the, that was the emblem that was given for people to look at when they were being bitten by poisonous snakes that God had sent into the camp as judgment against them. But, if they were bitten, they could look to this pole, this high pole that this bronze snake had been put on and look at the glint of the sun off of that bronze snake and they would see that. And by looking at that, they would receive healing. It would save their lives. They kept, that, that was kept. That was a souvenir from the days of the wilderness. <laughs> For some reason... It became something that they started burning incense to. Hey, back in the old days, we could look at it and be healed from our, uh, you know, from our, from the snake bite. Maybe we could, you know, burn incense to this thing, and it healed us from other problems and solve our other problems. You know, it became and it became it became a it became a little idol in itself. A souvenir became an idol. Everything that Hezekiah does here is audacious. He tears down things that are traditional. And even goes so far as to destroy something that went all the way back to Moses. That Moses himself had made. How do you dare to do that? He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. So that there was none. Now look at these words. There was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but unlike Solomon. Solomon started out great and then wandered away. Hezekiah was not like Solomon. Hezekiah started out great and he finished strong. following him, but kept the commandments of the Lord. He did not depart from Hollingen, kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Last time we heard those words, they were attached to David. Wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and wouldn't serve him. This is brought out as being part of the same program as the tearing down of the idols. He rebelled against the king of Assyria. Now there were a lot of historical things going on here during this time. And there are a lot of political things that we're not told about. Because it's not significant to kings. But it's, interest, it's useful for some of the background of what's going on here. Assyria had uh, came in. They laid waste to the northern kingdom of Israel. They laid waste to Syria. They took over. They, they did... They did their job. They did what they were paid to do, what they were paid off to do. They got Israel and Syria out of the way. Boy, did they get them out of the way. They came in and they exiled. We're going to read a little bit more about that, a little rehash, a, re a little recap of that that's coming up. They did all of that. But then after that, 
That was Tiglath-Pileser II. After that, uh, he was succeeded by Sargon II, who was not as strong of a guy, and he had a lot of problems with the king of Babylon, who is known to us in the Bible as Merodach-Baladan. And uh, his Babylonian was name was Marduk, something or other. But you know, it's... now this king of Babylon gave gave Sargon fits, and Sargon was spent a good me- measure of time fighting him, dealing with him, uh, trying to get that out of the way. There were a couple of rebellions that went on from that Babylonian king. He's going to show up here, by the way, in a little bit in this text. During that time, Assyria is kind of out of the way. They're not doing anything. And Hezekiah comes to power during this time. He sees a chance. And so he begins to do some things. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shamanizer, king, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria. Oh, uh, I skip at verse 7. Uh, he rebelled against the king of Assyria. He would not serve him. Verse 8, he struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from Watchtower to fortified city. So like David, he's conquering the Philistines again. He's getting them in order. Why the Philistines? Because he needed people who would resist Assyria. He needed a cushion. He needed a buffer against... Hezekiah is a believer. He's not naive. He knows the world that he's in and he knows also Assyria, even in a weaker, more distracted condition, is still not a pushover. He knows that he's going to deal with some serious problems. And he does everything that he needs to do. He, he becomes a, a very, very efficient administrative king. And the Lord was with him and gave him the ability to do everything, everything that he needed to do to begin to build defenses and securities and conquer the, the peoples around it so that he didn't have to deal with distractions of little border skirmishes all the time and actually had some allies in place rather than adversaries next door to him. So he's doing all of this. Now it goes on and gives us a recap of something that takes place in the uh, when Shalmaneser king of Assyria came against Samaria besieged it at the end of three years. He took it in the sixth year of Hezekiah which was the ninth year of Hosea king of Israel. Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria, put them in Halan on the Habor, the river goes on the cities of the Medes because they didn't obey the voice of the Lord their God but transgressed his covenant even in all the most, uh, that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded them they neither listened nor obeyed. So a little recap there in order to remind us the real reason that Israel was conquered was not political, it was not military, it was not because of the ambitions of the Assyrians, it's because God gave them up to the Assyrians. Just a reminder of that. In the 14th year of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now, this apparently is about 30 years after all of this that took place that we just, with the decimation of the northern kingdom and the conquering of Samaria. Okay, this is one of those chronological issues. We're looking at comparing the the real dates that we know of history uh, from other history with with what we go know here and when Sennacherib came. Sennacherib came and invaded uh, Judah in 701 BC. 
And so this is basically what's taken place. This is about 30 years after the uh, after Tiglath-Pileser devastated the northern kingdom. So this is why I mentioned to you the issues of chronology. It's not the same chronology that we would use. We would use a unified chronology. The writer of Kings is not using that system. This is the 14th year of... Yeah. That's right. That's right. This is not the 14th year from the time that he actually began doing king the, the job of king. This is 14th year from the time that he was actually the solitary king. Okay? And Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish saying, I've done wrong. Withdraw from me whatever you impose on me, I will bear. It looks like a moment of weakness. It looks like Hezekiah's wavering. He said, I'll pay you. Pull out. Why? Because Lachish was one of his fortified cities. Lachish was a strong, strong fortified city. The Assyrians were besieging it, and they were taking it. And this is not, things are not looking good for Hezekiah. Hezekiah, his first impulse is to follow the same kind of policy that his predecessors had used. Raid the temple treasury and send money to the Assyrians. Bribe them. Send them a bribe. Send them tribute money. Pay their protection money and send them home. That's the idea. He went and he took... It speaks of how he goes. He uh, strips the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord from the doorpost that he himself had had put there. He had been he had restored the temple, had begun restoring the temple to its former glory from the days that it had been of, of its depredations under King Ahaz. He had done this. He had begun redecorating the temple. He goes in. I think one of the reasons he felt like he could do this because he supplied that gold. So he took it back. Problem is, that gold is dedicated to the Lord now that he's, he's given that. But he takes things that are dedicated to the Lord, uses that to see if he can get the king of Assyria off his back. Doesn't work. Sennacherib takes the money and says, I'm still going to kill you. He wants to make an example of Hezekiah. You remember the Lord Byron poem. The Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold. And his cohorts were gleaming in silver and gold. So at that time. And the, verse 17. The king of Assyria sent the Tartan. The Rabsaris and the Rabshaka with the great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. These are basically officers in his army. Doesn't that just sound cling on? I mean, just Rabshaka. You know, just, and they went up and came to Jerusalem. So he sends he sends uh, an army with commanders here, and we're not yet at the point of attack. What goes on here? Now, here's where here's what I want to put in here. Hezekiah is the godliest king that Judah has had since David. How does God bless him? 
God's with him in everything that he does, but does it mean that he is without trouble? You've got to understand something. Hezekiah came to the throne at a time when God was getting ready to do with Judah the same thing that he was doing with Israel. Judah was no more worth saving at that point than Israel was until Hezekiah came in. Hezekiah's godliness became an intercessor. He inter- his godliness became interposed between Judah and the judgment that God had already appointed for Judah. Judah should have gone down at the same time that Israel was. Judah was no more righteous than Israel at that time. As a matter of fact, Israel had a more righteous king in place in Hosea than Judah did under Ahaz at that time. And Israel still went down because they'd gone too far. So apparently had Judah. Israel had gone too far, so apparently had Judah. Hezekiah came in as king and God approved of Hezekiah and God blessed Hezekiah but God did not spare Hezekiah from testing as a matter of fact Hezekiah is going to have to do the work of spiritual warfare in his own era I say spiritual warfare not just military warfare because the spiritual warfare is far more crucial God has appointed judgment for Judah And the only thing standing between Judah and the judgment of God right now is a righteous king. And he gets rid of the idols. Even though, you think that brought unity to the people? It's like he was doing right, back in the wilderness, Moses called out, who is on the Lord's side? The Levite stood up. And out of the Levites fighting against the idolaters, the Levites won and saved Israel from the judgment of God. Joshua standing before the people in a happier day and said, you, can, you need to make your mind up that you're going to choose to follow the gods in, in Egypt that our fathers worshipped for the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. If you're going to do that, you better do it now. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people followed Joshua. But some centuries later, Elijah stood on Mount Carmel and said, Why stand you halting between two opinions? The Lord is God, serve him, and Baal's God served him, and the people didn't answer the word. They waited to see. Do you know, when, when revival comes... It splits as much as it unifies. Revival unifies the people of God, but it also splits off the people of God from those who were just kind of named the name, but didn't really, they wanted the label, but they didn't really want. They didn't want to pay the price. You had Hezekiah doing away with a lot of traditions here. Here come in the Assyrians, and they are testing. And this is a test for Hezekiah. And at first glance, it looks like Hezekiah is going to fall into the same trap that his predecessors fell into. I trust the Lord when things are going well and when the enemy is far away, but when the enemy comes close, I I start looking for ways to fix it. I start trying to figure it. I start trying to see what... 
what I can do to solve this situation. After all, doesn't the Lord help those who help themselves? So, the Assyrians came, and they're not quite ready to attack Jerusalem yet, but they're just threatening to. They're saying, why don't you just go ahead and turn it? You've already lost this war. Why don't you just go ahead and surrender? Surrender to me. Turn yourself over to me. Turn Jerusalem over to me. Let me just trust me to do with it as I will. You can trust me. Turn yourself over to me. I took Hosea, Hosea captive those years ago. We'll take you captive. You can go live in a nice place that we have for you in Nineveh. <laughs> the king of Assyria sent these guys, and they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. They sent for the king. These are servants of the king of Assyria. They send for the king, for King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah responds by sending out his officers, just like were sent to him. So King Hezekiah is not surrendering the idea that as kings we stand as equals because we are rulers here. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king. Now, that's not the way we moderns would hear it. When, when, when Sennacherib calls himself the great king, that basically is saying the king of kings. I am the emperor. I am your king. I am the great king. He is asserting himself to rule over all the other nations. As though I own you. I just by nature own you. You have no right to resist me. I am the great king. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. On what do you rest this trust of yours? This whole thing is about trust. And what? Oh, this is so good. The devil is so good. And his people are really good at what they do. They find that nerve. They find that weak spot. They find the, the point, which is the real point of controversy. And right here, it is that issue of trust. Who do you trust? And why do you trust them? You think that mere words are strategy in powerful war? That is the true, that is the correct translation. Do you think that mere words are strategy and powerful war? You think you can win this war by just saying... By just laying out, by just writing out a battle plan? You think that'll work? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Behold, now you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff that will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in it. And by the way, that's exactly what the prophet Isaiah and the other prophets had said. Don't trust Egypt. They're a broken reed. They'll pierce your hand. You lean on them. I mean, you can't trust them. Don't put your trust in Egypt. Well, the king of Assyria said that. That's actually correct that's true sometimes propaganda is true and this is pure propaganda oh it's good look at it look at he's trying to get in their mind if you say to me we trust in the lord our god oh listen to this this you fans of uh, lord of the rings this is grim a worm tongue speaking here 
If you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Hezekiah has torn down all these altars of Jehovah. You've made him mad. He's made you come to worship in Jerusalem. You think the Lord's going to deliver you? You've made Jehovah mad. Tearing down all these altars to Jehovah. See, strictly speaking, that's what Hezekiah did. He tore down altars to the Lord that were on these high places. Never mind the fact that all of those were against the law. They'd been there for centuries. They'd been there for generations. We've always done it this way. And Hezekiah's taken it away now. See, so he's exploiting that division as created by Hezekiah bringing in reform. Then he says, come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to, on your part, to set riders on them. Well, this is true. Hezekiah didn't emphasize cavalry. So, you don't need cavalry when you're defending against a siege behind a wall. But, All that's for psychological effect. How then can you repulse a single captain among among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Moreover, oh, this is deadly. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And that's a half-truth too. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, then Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic. We understand it. Don't speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? King James Version is even more vivid than that, but we won't recite it. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, which is Hebrew. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. And then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. A land of grain and wine. A land of bread of vineyards. A land of olive trees and honey. That you may live and not die. See, just, y'all just give up. And then you can go home to your own place until I come and deport you to some place that you've never been. But trust me, it's a good place. You'll be happy there. You'll be happy there. <clears throat> oh, man. And don't listen. And by the way, did you say a land of trees and honey that you may live and not die? Do you hear these echoes of the covenant? The land of milk and honey? Well, the land of trees and honey. Do you hear the the echoes that you may live and not die? The covenant, do this and you shall live. Choose life. Moses' words to the people in Deuteronomy, choose life this day. 
and not death. This guy has studied these people. Like every good propagandist, like every good political operative, he has studied these people. He knows their culture. He knows their literature. He knows their literature better than they do, and he's quoting it back to them. And he's getting into their minds. And folks, whenever you are in a test, understand that the devil will seek to get into your mind. He will bring confusion. He will bring up to you things that you thought you learned, but you... There will be uh, just that fog that's there that that just to to get you to distrust the God that you have believed in. To get you to distrust the promises that you have put your faith in. And maybe you will do it through some counselor who comes to you and gives you the counsel of some, basically gives you the counsel of a humanist. It says you need to trust in man and not God. And then he says, don't listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. This is verse 33 if you're following. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Among all the gods of the land I've delivered... uh, among who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? He doesn't know it yet. But he has just said the words that have damned his king and his army. He doesn't know it. But the people were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Now that is an interesting bit of information that was withheld to us until this point. What do we know from this? We know that Hezekiah knew that this was coming. And he prepared his people. And he said they're going to do this. And they're not going to be ashamed about carrying on diplomacy, not just with, the, with my officials, but they're going to try to persuade the people. They're going to do this shamelessly. And Hezekiah knew it, and he said, when they do, nobody says a word. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was over the household in Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshak. And as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Kings of Judah and Israel before the unworthy kings, whenever they went to the house of the Lord, it would be to sack it, be to tear up the place because they'd, they'd be saying, God's forsaken us. Remember a son, of, a son of Ahab who was king of Israel when the Arameans under Ben-Hadad surrounded Samaria and were putting it under siege and it was a desperate time. And he tore his clothes at one point and it revealed sackcloth. 
And, now, and we find out that he had been trying to serve the Lord. He'd been trying to believe in God, but it just wasn't working. And now he was going to go kill Elisha the prophet. That was the attitude of these unbelieving kings. Hezekiah goes to the temple. And he pray, and he sends a word. Through Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there's no strength to bring them forth. Do not think that because you are strong in faith that you are not going to be tested to the point of absolute desperation, and you won't feel just like that. It's like children have come to the point of birth, and there's no point, there's no strength to bring them forth. That's desperate time. It's desperate time. Don't think that you won't be pushed to the point of desperation. We've got a little Christian cliche going on. The Lord won't put on you more than you can stand. Yes, He will. He will do so for the purpose of making you depend only upon Him. At this point, Hezekiah has no place to go. All of his allies are gone. Egypt is not going to be of any help. There's only one place he can go, and that's to the Lord. That's where he goes. And so he says to Isaiah, it may be that the Lord your God has heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that's left. That word remnant is significant in this book. Lift up your voice for the remnant that's left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to the Isaiah already had an answer. Isaiah had already been given a word from the Lord. Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words you've heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I'll make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found, that the, king of, found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he heard that the king left Lachish. Libna is another fortified city in Judah had raised up a problem. So while the king of Assyria is trying to conquer Lachish, which is a strong fortified city, then Libna raises a problem. This is one of the defend, part of the defensive network that Hezekiah had strengthened. It's working for him. Libna raises up. And so Sennacherib has to go and answer that issue. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given in the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction, and, you shall, be del and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, the people of Eden who were in Talasar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of Sepharvaim, the king of Hanor, the king of Eva? So what we have here is a cliffhanger. It looks like, first of all, here's, here's what it is. Isaiah, the prophet, gives a word. The king of Assyria is going to hear a rumor and he's going to withdraw. 
and he's going to die by the sword in his own land. Don't worry about him. It looks like, okay, all of this is transpiring over a period of weeks, perhaps months, okay, understand this is not this day, then the next day, then the next day. This is taking time. They look out and they see the Assyrian army has left. And then they find out that the king of Assyria has had to answer this other issue. And is going off into fighting that. They think, God's promise has been fulfilled. We are delivered. God's promise has not yet been fulfilled. This is not what Isaiah was talking about. It just looked that way. And it, I'll tell you, this, this is significant because it's going to look like God's promise has failed. And the messenger comes back and says, we're going to deal with this situation and we are going to be back. And when we're back, you're not going to have the chance for mercy like you had before. And right now it looks like God's promise has, been, has proven faulty. It looks like Isaiah has been wrong. It looks like the word of God is about to fail. On that note, we're going to leave it for next week. <laughs> to be continued. Yes, we truly have a cliffhanger ending this time. You just have to come back next time to see how it all turns out. Until then, you've been listening to Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>